the first speaker uh, is special to me. Uh, Peter Chinhong is uh, also from UCSF. Uh, uh, Peter is an infectious disease specialist. He works uh, uh, mostly in our uh, transplant, uh, organ transplant program, uh, works with uh, some seriously toxic uh, uh, chemicals used to treat patients in the, in the course of organ transplantation. A lot of those have immunologic effects, uh, leading to many infectious complications, as you, uh, as you appreciate. Uh, it struck us that uh, there's a revolution happening in medicine. Uh, involving uh, a lot of drugs that are active in the immune system for the treatment of cancer, for the treatment of, of uh, uh, inflammatory diseases, and that a lot of these drugs are very, uh, their, their names are hard to pronounce. Uh, they often end in MAB or something similar. Uh, and they have a number of complications that I think a, a number of us see in our HIV patients or people that are infectious disease experts that are uh, practicing, especially consultations in the hospitals, uh, see as a complications of, of, of people getting those drugs. So we asked Peter uh, to come this morning uh, to go into a topic that's not directly uh, in the line of, of general uh, HIV treatment, but he's going to help us understand why it is important to, uh, to improve our understanding of these drugs. So, Peter, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, uh, IES USA family. And thanks to all of you for having me here today. Um, this is not your normal topic, as, as Paul said. Uh, and I'm not going to make you an expert in immunobiologics by the end of this talk, but what I'm going to do is give you an organizational framework. Because I think it's important for us in this multi-billion dollar industry that's emerging from these medications to try and understand where our patients fit in when they're on a biologic and how to approach it, how to prepare them for a biologic. And I would say that the so-called experts, the people are actually prescribing them actively, like rheumatologists or uh, oncologists, don't always do the cross the T's and dot the I's. So I think it's up to us when we have our primary care patients to really do that as well and be that, that uh, second group with the patient together. So that's the purpose of doing uh, some of this talk and, and giving you that scaffold to organize the information. So um, you have the objectives. So what I'm going to really give you is a really broad overview of how to approach immunobiologics in your patient. Um, explain very briefly in a 30,000 foot view of how they work so that you can just talk to your patient about them in the context of what else they are on and describe some of the, the infectious complications as well as non-infectious complications that may emerge while your patients are on these immunobiologics. And finally, talk about some prevention strategies that we have. So first of all, why are we talking about this topic today? You might say, well, I don't really know if any of my patients are on immunobiologics. Well, our patients are living longer. And as many of you know, the life expectancy of an HIV-infected patient is approaching that of the general population. And as people are living longer, they're going to get many of the diseases that the general population gets uh, with aging, including a lot of autoimmune diseases, as well as malignancies. So you have the uh, decreased immunosurveillance brought on by HIV itself, even if you restore the immune system. And with aging, you have a double hit because uh, 
uh, our immune surveillance is also slightly attenuated as we get older as well. So that leads to these uh, autoimmune diseases as well as uh, malignancies. But I must put that in context, and one of your last talks today is going to be by the other Peter, uh, who's going to give you talk about the opioid epidemic. And although I, I said that life expectancy is increasing, we do know that in the last three years in the United States, unfortunately, the general population, life expectancy is decreasing, due in, in large part, I think, to the opioid epidemic. So that's really putting it in context. So these are array of autoimmune and, and and cancers that we can think about, so rheumatoid arthritis, vasculitis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, psoriasis, lymphoma, melanoma, prostate cancer, and leukemia. Who in the audience has had a patient with one of these conditions? So I think it seems that the vast majority of you have raised your hands. And I would say, I would submit that if one of your patients has had this or will have this in the future, they're going to likely be on a biologic. It's becoming much more widespread. And it's these things with the abs and the inflabs that you see at the end of, on the med list and you're not really sure what it is. It behooves us to really at least put them in a box. And I would submit that there are five boxes that you can probably put somebody in when they're on a biologic. These are four of them. One is a TNF-alpha inhibitor, probably the oldest class. They include drugs like infliximab or tanacept primarily given by rheumatologists uh, for a variety of rheumatologic conditions, inflammatory uh, disease. Uh, the second box is the anti-CD20 or anti-B cell uh, agents. Rituximab is, is the poster child of that group. And they usually treat uh, conditions like lymphoma, and many of you probably have seen rituximab being used. And the third class, which is uh, something that's, you know, part of this vanguard of new biologics that's causing this multi-billion dollar industry is the checkpoint blockade uh, agents. Um, that's, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that at the end in terms of what's, where, thing, where the field is going. And then finally, CAR T-cells, you know, one of the breakthroughs of the year by Science Magazine, et cetera, is, is another drug class that we'll be seeing a lot uh, of talk about in the future. The, five, the fifth box, I said there are five boxes, is everything else. So I'd say that if they're not in, in one of these four boxes, you put them in the everything else category, including Ibatizumab, um, which is, um, and, and some of these other agents, which, which I think, um, you know, if you don't know what it is, uh, try to at least frame it in a particular way. I'll give you some tools to do that by the end of this talk. So what is a biologic? So it's any biologically derived product. So it's a very, very broad term. Uh, it binds or interferes with a specific molecular target. And the name itself gives you a clue as to what, uh, you know, where it comes from. So it may end in CEPT or MAB or XMAB or ZUMAB. And, and that basically gives you a clue as to what part of the immune system is being manipulated not always gives you a clue as to what infectious or, or non-infectious complication you may get, but at least it gives you a sense of, of where you're starting from. Let's step back a little bit and talk about immunosuppression in a non-HIV host. Um, you know, there is a gradation, and, and you know, we, we think about patients who are hypospanic as being relatively immunosuppressed, but I think the top of the pyramid is probably those patients who've had uh, 
stem cell transplants or those who have hematologic malignancies. Uh, just below that is organ transplant. Strictly speaking, the sort of biologics uh, for inflammatory disease uh, land sort of in between the hyposplenism and the heme malignancies. So that's the autoimmune disease treatment and solid tumor treatment that we'll talk about. But when you talk about HIV disease, of course it's a spectrum overlying that non-HIV spectrum. So again, as I said, sometimes patients have two hits. It's important to think about them in these two axes in terms of their overall immune status when you're looking at that patient in front of you in clinic and trying to talk to them about what they have. So based on the kind of drug they're on, they, they have a very specific uh, immune defect. So we're used to cell-mediated immunity and defects in cell-mediated immunity because that's really where our HIV patients land. But when they're non-HIV meds, uh, they can also interact in that particular box as well. So these include uh, HIV patients, for example, who've had solid organ transplants, uh, stem cell transplants, those who are being treated with TNF-alpha inhibitors, which are one of the biologics that we'll talk about. Uh, those who are on steroids and other biologics. That's the fifth box. We can talk about the humoral immunity. And cell-mediated immunity, of course, is important for usually uh, a vast array of infectious uh, diseases, but particularly those uh, intracellular, like um, uh, salmonella or listeria and some of these other, uh, mycobacterium. Those are some of the agents where T-cell-mediated immunity is particularly important. When we think about humoral immunity, that's where you know, our antibodies are really important, and again, responsible for a vast array of, of infections, uh, including things that are outside of the cell, which are many, many kinds of infectious agents. And when we think about biologics that affect that sphere of, of the immune system, we think about rituximab, very, very potent uh, B-cell active uh, drug as well. And then the final uh, sort of immune defect related to drugs use, of course, is the drugs that affect uh, innate immunity, or polys. Those are pretty much responsible for uh, staph aureus, uh, you know, neutrophils, uh, defects in neutrophils really giving you problems in that sphere. So again, think about the agent that your patient is on, which box does it land on, I'll give you more details about that, and think about the defect that that drug brings with it, and think about the, you know, again, that HIV access that your patient is on. So how is this different from regular HIV, uh, you know, what I'm going to tell you about today? Well, in, in HIV, as you know, the immune defect is really the death of CD4 T cells. With the non-HIV biologics, there's actually, it's a very heterogeneous effect. That's why it's very, very difficult to really think about all of the biologics in a list because it just becomes uh, a very daunting list of things that end in MAB or AB and you don't really know how to organize it. But again, if you think about that organizational structure of five boxes, I think you're going to be fine. Again, the TNF-alpha inhibitors, the, the rituximab or the anti-B cell agents, we're going to talk about checkpoint blockade agents, uh, CAR T cells, and then finally everything else. In terms of risk stratification for opportunistic infections, of course in HIV you know that we use the CD4 count as a marker to help us gauge whether or not we can add prophylaxis, whether or not uh, you know, somebody's going to be at risk for certain kinds of malignancies. With these biologics, you know, it's really all over the map and we really have to be vigilant because our history is being written now in terms of what 
complications patients get with these biologics. We don't really know the whole story, and you will be writing some of that history yourselves and your patients. So that's why we really have to be vigilant. So let's start with a case to kind of put this re, uh, into real life, because these are all based on real cases, and they come from all over, some of the colleagues that I've had all over the world, so they, they actually reflect uh, some of the things that we're seeing now. Uh, so this is kind of a classic case uh, from, from Boston, a 56-year-old woman with HIV, CD4 count of 360 viral load undetectable with Crohn's disease, managed with infliximab, a very common use agent in Crohn's disease, with 6-MP. Uh, usually used in combination with infliximab. She pre presents to the emergency department complaining of shortness of breath for three weeks. What else do you want to know in this particular patient? What are some of the common things? Anybody in the audience? We're not going to have audience formal audience response system here. We're going to do uh, old-fashioned uh, people yelling out things to the audience. So pulse socks, that's, that's great. So you want to stage her in terms of the ED. Any particular diagnostic tests or history that you want to know? Travel history, that's great. Um, and anything else? Smoking, PPD. So I've heard some really, you guys are getting, or, you know, it's like crowdsourcing. You know, if you ask enough people, you get the answer to the case. <laughs> and you guys pretty much gave the answer to much of the things that we would do. So, you know, in, in terms of somebody coming in like this with infliximab, which is one of the most uh, traditional biologic agents, TNF-alpha inhibitor agents, we still want to know what, what their PPD history is because uh, I'll describe it, but there's some um, association with mycobacterial disease. We want to know sort of like old-fashioned history in terms of travel, because that may put them at risk for certain types of exposures, um, just in terms of the, 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 you know, how the patient's presenting. So uh, she's uh, PPD negative. Uh, she lives in New York. Uh, she came back four weeks ago from a trip to Puerto Rico where she visited family and helped with property cleanup. So what are, what are people thinking here? This is kind of a... Uh, you know, I might say, suppose she was in the Ohio and uh, Mississippi River Valley coming in with this. <laughs> you guys remember from step one on the boards, what's, uh, what's that association? Histoplasmosis, right? So histoplasmosis is actually more endemic than, um, than one would think. It's, uh, you know, it's ubiquitous. We think about Ohio and Mississippi River Valley, but even in California, even though we are very coxy represented, Histoplasmosis is present in some parts there, and certainly in the Caribbean as well. So this person coming in and infliximab, you really want to know where the patient has been, where the patient was born, coming in with this sort of respiratory uh, uh, symptoms, and you'd want to check, uh, you know, you, you rule out the mycobacterial disease, uh, you want to check a urinary histoplasma antigen, which is positive in this case, you might start off with a chest x-ray, which may, mean, may or may not give you the full picture. You get a CT scan and it lights up in this, with these very, very prominent nodules. Uh, very, very dramatic presentation um, of, of histoplasmosis, pulmonary histo, acute pulmonary histoplasmosis. Probably uh, the risk factor was, again, it could be uh, spelunking in bat caves. It could be like, you know, post-hurricane uh, cleaning up and you're digging up the soil you're going to be exposed to uh, histoplasmosis. And in the context of a, a TNF-alpha inhibitor, it's really going to give you uh, that risk for getting acute disease. But 
the classic opiacic infection associated with TNF-alpha inhibitors is, of course, mycobacterial disease and tuberculosis in particular. In fact, again, as I said, the history is being written as we use these agents because at the time when these agents come on board, you're not going to see many of the, the opiacic infections being reported. They're coming to market really, really quickly. And in fact, this is one of the cases where it took you know, quite several years for people to start accumulating experience to see that uptick in mycobacterial and TB cases. So this is one of the classic reports showing 70 cases of TB between 1998 and 2001 with infliximab. Most of it happens in the first three to six months, so it's not happening immediately, so it can kind of sneak up on you. And you can see that much of the, many of the cases, because these patients are such a defect in the defenses against mycobacterial disease, uh, that you're seeing it outside of the lung because it's becoming very disseminated. So when we think about endemic mycoses, like histoplasmosis, coxy in California, Arizona, et cetera, uh, those are the second probably most famous risk uh, optiosis infection associated with TNF-alpha inhibitors. Uh, in a survey of serious infection on, t of t on TNF-alpha inhibitors in the U.S., uh, you can see that histoplasmosis is actually more common than, we, we fuss a lot about TB, but I'll tell you that the, the really sneaky uh, optimistic infection are these endemic mycoses, histoplasmosis, coxy in particular, and then some of these are the more minor ones. If somebody's coming from Southeast Asia, of course, just like in HIV, you think about penicillium. You know, we saw somebody with penicillium uh, in the hospital last week, for example, on a TNF-alpha inhibitor. So when you looked at this FDA alert in 2008, 256 cases of histoplasmosis in patients with TNF-alpha inhibitors. And again, the Caribbean is also, uh, has a lot of histoplasmosis. Okay, let's take another case. This is coming from uh, one of my colleagues from Hong Kong. 42-year-old male with Crohn's disease for three years, started on infliximab again after persistent diarrhea for five months prior. So this is all active Crohn's. The GI uh, folks decided, let's try some biologics. He was admitted now with three weeks of shortness of breath, low-grade temps, dry cough, no help with amoxicillin for weeks, which is what their first-line sort of community-acquired pneumonia coverage in Hong Kong is. So what's, what are people thinking is going on here? What, what would you do? You guys can just shout it out. There's, there's no, like I tell my uh, medical students, you know, there's really no wrong answer. Um, he, is, he's, he is HIV uninfected as, as he knows it, but that's, that's a great point. So I guess he, he thinks, he hasn't been tested for a while, but. So you do an HIV test. Anything else? Well, what diagnostic test would you do, I guess, you know, as a start, without knowing the differential diagnosis? Chest x-ray to start off with. Uh, anything else? CBC. So we probably would think about this case, you know, in terms of him coming in with a, a biologic, I think, you know, uh, so with chest x-ray, think about, you know, does he have any other immune deficits, uh, HIV, for example, check for, uh, you know, rule him out for TVs, and, you know, he's coming from Hong Kong, he's in Hong Kong setting, uh, sitting with a TNF-alpha inhibitor, I want to make sure that that's not uh, the case. And, um, and also, look, you know, if that's negative, I'll go on to the second tier, which is doing a CT scan, probably 
uh, getting a bronch. Those are some of the other things that we're doing. Maybe checking some serologies for endemic mycoses. In Hong Kong, that's going to be maybe some penicillium, et cetera. So this is what happened uh, in this case. Uh, he, they did sputums for TB, again, thinking about TNF-alpha and, um, and TB, which is probably the most famous one. Those were negative. Uh, culture is negative. Is respiratory virus PCR is negative. Again, lots of respiratory, depending on the season. This was in winter. Uh, his chest CT, his x-ray was just uh, non-helpful, so they went straight to his CT scan, which showed ground glass opacities. And BAL, because it was, uh, you know, not, nothing else was positive so far, came up as uh, PCP, uh, pneumocystis urovecii. Uh, he was HIV antibody positive. Uh, he didn't know it at the time. Uh, and so this is PCP pneumonia. Actually, T cells were around 200, but this percent was a little bit higher. So it probably was that the TNF-alpha inhibitor catalyzed, um, you know, worked with the, piece, the HIV in the background and, and, and in terms of his risk factor for PCP pneumonia. So this is a very dramatic presentation of PCP pneumonia. He was treated with clindamycin and primroquine and started on antiretroviral therapy. Uh, just to briefly give you some other cases that we've had, so this is a 74-year-old, this is an HIV-negative uh, person who's been treated for, uh, with, with uh, another biologic, uh, which is a, I'll put that in the fifth box, the other. It's not one of the main ones that we talked about. But this is a case where you might know what idealisib is, but then you'd probably look it up and see where it fits in. And, and you want to at least know it has it been associated with any uh, opportunistic infections. And in this case, this person came in. The, the person was providing, uh, giving the prescription in the first place, uh, which was not um, his primary care provider, didn't really know all of the side effects, so hadn't put him on uh, prophylaxis of PCP, and then uh, this patient developed PCB pneumonia. When you look at the literature, for this particular agent, there's actually a big uptick in, in uh, PCP. Um, a retrospective analysis of over 2,000 patients uh, with, treated with rituximab plus or minus this, um, this, this agent uh, gave a, a risk ratio of 12.5 for PCP and median time to PCP of 141 days. And you know, again, as I said, history is being is written now. No, but there's no really standard uh, PCP prophylaxis guidance, even though there's this big uptick in uh, PCP that's being seen uh, over time. So again, as, as you see it in your patients, report it to the registries, uh, people will then take this information and then, uh, you know, institute guidelines where I think we're very young in, in this whole field. So again, we're, we're seeing all these things happen. Another, uh, a more uh, classic case of an OI that people have heard about in, in these biologics is PML, uh, cases of that we've seen a 69-year-old HIV-negative woman with low-grade lymphoma treated only rituximab. Again, that's the anti-B cell box that we, we put that in. Uh, months after treatment, developed slowly progressive mental status changes. CSF is PCR positive with JC virus and MRI consistent with PML. And uh, diagnosis is uh, PML, basically, uh, for this particular patient. So we talked about uh, microbacterial disease and TNF-alpha. We talked about fungal disease and, and endemic mycoses. What about biologics and viral infections? Well, there's a lot of evidence for viral infections and biologics, particularly with TNF-alpha inhibitors, the, the oldest class. Hepatitis B reactivation is very, uh, has been, been seen very frequently. Um, 
particularly with TNF-alpha inhibitors, as well as rituximab. JC virus, uh, like we talked about causing PML, uh, has been seen with rituximab, which is uh, much more commonly used, but also with other biologic agents like natalizumab, where it gotten a lot of press because it, there have been several reports in New England Journal. And of course, just regular plain old VZV, which again, is very common, causes our patients a lot of distress. They can get post-hepatic neuralgia, so I think it's important to really prepare patients for all of this, so to recognize that atypical rash when it's coming in as possibly being VZV, instituting antiviral therapy early, and helping to prevent that uh, post-hepatic neuralgia in your patient, or even stepping up before that, knowing your patient is going to be on a biologic, maybe thinking, well, now there's this Shingrix out there, I can give them Shingrix before they go on the biologic so that I can help prevent that uh, varicella zoster or zoster outbreak when they are being put on this biologic by somebody else. So let's close with thinking about some of the new and exciting new directions in biologics. And many of you have heard about uh, cancer immunotherapy. I think. New York was very prominently played in this history. In the 1800s, uh, there's a surgeon here called um, William Coley. Uh, he noticed that one, one of his patients who had a sarcoma got an infection. The sarcoma magically began disappearing, so much so that he designed uh, these cocktails of various uh, pus, essentially, in, in a liquid and gave other patients to see if if they drank it, their cancers would disappear as well. Unfortunately, that wasn't quite as successful, but uh, this was really the first evidence that our immune system can, has a play in terms of causing cancers when they don't work properly, but also in, in helping to cure cancer as well when we can uh, ha target the cancer that we're trying to treat. And that's the whole basis of cancer immunotherapy. So Jamie, Jimmy Carter was one of the, the first vanguards of some of the, this exciting new era in biologics. So he had metastatic melanoma, as many of you know. It was stage four. He had it in his brain, and that's usually a 0% survival. But he got one of these new class of agents called checkpoint blockade inhibitors, or checkpoint blockade agents or checkpoint inhibitors. And uh, he was cured, essentially. Uh, turning a universally fatal disease, stage four melanoma, into a 30% cure is actually quite uh, dramatic. So this, this new agent, uh, class of agent, called checkpoint blockade uh, agents. So what is it? Uh, well, it was, you know, some of the early evidence actually came across the bay from UCSF at Berkeley with this uh, investigator called Jim Allison. And uh, basically what he was observing all the time, and several other investigators as well, is that, you know, there, were, there was probably about a couple decades of, of uh, evidence that the immune system was really important in not only surveillance of cancer, but also in, in treating cancer as well. So uh, this is one of his experiments with, when he, uh, with a grad student where he uh, gave these, these knockout mice some melanoma, essentially, and used some of these... Uh, blockade inhibitors to treat the melanoma, and you can see that um, uh, together with a vaccine to, to boost the effect of the blockade agent, you can see that not only did the, uh, the, the mice um, recover from the melanoma, and, and these were mice who had a metastatic disease, but they also had, um, interestingly, these um, 
uh, melanin cells that were in the unaffected cells also being affected as well. So these mice were getting vitiligo. Uh, so you develop these agents to help treat the cancer, but they were also being so activated that they were treating things that were non-cancer as well. So what are checkpoint blockade inhibitors exactly? Well, our immune system has developed, there are hundreds of breaking systems that we've built in to tell the T cells and the NK cells, hey, you're, you're, active, you're too active, let's slow down a little bit. Um, when, you, when you break them too much, uh, they basically are too sluggish, and then when we have malignancies, they don't work quite as well, and we can get metastatic disease and, um, and, and, and die. But essentially, if you block that inhibitory break system, you can basically have a, this activated immune system, which can then treat the cancer, for, in this case, uh, metastatic melanoma. The other flip side of, of checkpoint blockade is the accelerator, and you can also press on the, on the accelerator harder, and that can also, you know, these two systems of, of checkpoint blockade has been exploited in, in more than a thousand trials currently uh, that people are looking at. But apart from treatment cancer, as shown in these mice, you can also have these untoward effects. Uh, we're seeing a lot of autoimmune disease as well as um, uh, uh, immune-related adverse effects uh, uh, associated with using these agents. So again, these are which can mim mimic infections, and so these are some things that we have to look for uh, more closely. And what's used to treat these, these uh, immune-related adverse effects? Well, more immunosuppression. So if somebody gets these uh, side effects of a hyperimmune system because you're uh, inhibiting that breaking response, you're going to need, ironically, to treat them with more immunosuppression to quiet that down, which can then lead to, to more immune, uh, infectious complications. And, and in fact, TNF-alpha inhibitors the ones associated with mycobacterial disease and endemic mycoses and viral infections are frequently used to treat uh, inflammatory conditions associated with checkpoint blockade agents. So this is a, a very real case uh, provided from Jackie Wang from uh, San Francisco General Hospital. 52-year-old male with HIV CD4 count of 450, viral load uh, less than 50 on abacavir, dolutegravir, lamivudine with skin squamous cell cancer. Uh, patients enrolled in an AMC 095 trial, uh, which is on nivibulamab, which is a checkpoint blockade agent uh, for one year, presents with fecal incontinence and diarrhea. So again, you're thinking for this infection, it looks infectious, so you're probably going to do an OMP times three, you're going to check a Giardia uh, ELISA, you're going to uh, you know, probably do C. diff, of course, um, maybe uh, norovirus, depending on, on, on where you are. All that is negative, but of course, being on these checkpoint inhibitor uh, agents, you know, you're going to know that maybe it's because of a hyperimmune system, and in fact, this is checkpoint inhibitor-associated colitis, very, very frequently seen with these agents. So again, your patient might be in one of them, might be enrolled, you're seeing this weird drug on the list. Look up the drug, figure out where that, what, that, what kind of class the drug is, What's, you know from this talk that it's associated with these weird immune problems. So again, the treatment of these immune problems is going to be antibiotics or antivirals, but it's probably going to be more immunosuppression. And uh, in fact, the oncologist uh, put the patient on high-dose prednisone, 
and infliximab, which is one of these TNF-alpha inhibitors to treat the complications uh, associated with this agent. And, but luckily, like with Jimmy Carter, the, the skin cancer was um, in partial remission. And finally, you know, I think the most exciting uh, point it, uh, arena is in these CAR T-cell uh, agents. Uh, essentially, what you're doing in this case is you're very in a science fiction-y kind of world. You're taking some of these T-cells out. You're inserting a receptor in that T-cells in a facility. In, in, for example, in UCSF, we sent it to Southern California. It takes two to three weeks. They insert this receptor, this new receptor in the T-cell, the patient's T-cells. They multiply those T-cells, and then they ship it back to UCSF, and then we give it back to the patient. And then these T cells get zoomed into the cancer they're treating and then go crazy. And that's basically the rationale behind the, these uh, CAR T cell uh, agents. So um, that's basically uh, you know, some of these agents. Um, I think what I've also provided, will provide in the syllabus is you know, some hints of what to look for uh, before and, and during biologic use and um, that's pretty much an approach. Again, if you think about these boxes of these agents and where to put them in, you can anticipate some of the problems that your patients can have. Thanks a lot uh, for your attention. Sorry, I didn't see the book. We have a secret in this, uh, in this course. We have this light on the podium. Um, and as a speaker, you're watching the green light, and you see the yellow light, and then it turns red, and then we then you see the co-chair going, because <clears throat> we want to keep on time. Uh, uh, we have an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, one of the uh, ways that I got interested in this topic is that, um, and this goes back to HIV, that some of these drugs are being used to try to cure HIV infection. Uh, and at one of the Croys, I think the one last year, there was a presentation on, uh, on one of these, again, the uh, the hyper-inflammatory uh, response um, when one of these uh, checkpoint drugs was being used uh, in, in HIV. So stay tuned to this because it's important not just uh, as a complication of other treatments, but as we get more aggressive with, uh, with cure research, I think we'll be using it uh, there as well. So Peter, go to the microphone here. Come with me, I guess. Maybe sit down and I'll toss you some questions. Um, patient with HIV, uh, low T cells, are there uh, absolute contraindications in a patient with uh, advanced HIV uh, for the use of some of, these, uh, some of these drugs? Well, that's a great question. And um, uh, one of the references I provided uh, includes one of the biggest, uh, you know, repositories so far of HIV, experience of these biologics in HIV-infected patients. And again, it's not a lot. Uh, that's because people haven't really begun to recognize these as fully yet. But I think in general, uh, the guidelines are, and again, it's not based on evidence as much as uh, sort of like what people think is the right thing. is a CD4 count of 200. Uh, most of the experience of HIV patients on biologics are people in the CD4 count range of 400s or so, and they haven't had any uh, complications that are different from the general population. So once you stratify people above 200, uh, they seem to be the same as the general population and not more. In fact, you know, just 
yesterday I got an email with that same thing. I'll just read the email to you. A 30-year-old uh, with last CD4 count of 237 viral load of less than 40 on, on Genvoya, currently being worked up for abdominal pain and soft stools. Looks like Crohn's, but GI, the GI fellow contacted uh, us with a question of whether or not we can start Remicade, Infliximab, or Humira given the CD4 count. And again, CD4 count of 237, I probably feel fine, viral load undetectable, above 200 with starting a biologic agent. So actually that was a, an, a, another question. Um, are, are people looking at this with an idea of changing the guidelines? You know, we've gotten more relaxed about um, not using prophylaxis for a lot of the OIs and people that are on antiretrovirals because the experience has been so good. Is, does, do you think this is going to change those guidelines? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a lot of art to this. For example, 200 is not really a magic number, as all of you know, and we look at, you know, maybe the patient is acutely ill, they're coming in with a Crohn's flare, and their T cells is probably like 170, but really their percentage is 20% or 17%, and you know historically their numbers have been much higher. Probably what that is is probably a fake out because they're acutely ill. So again, we look at the whole picture and the trajectory, and it is no magic about 200, and in fact, it's a, always a risk-benefit ratio. And if the patient's really had you know, is, has a poor quality of life and is, is having all these perfs and bacterial infections and, and uh, bacteremias associated with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, sure, you know, 170, uh, decent percentage, uh, I would probably do it, but would be vigilant, just like, you know, we should be with all these patients on biologics. So there's a question about um, patients with uh, MS, because uh, some of these are, are agents are being tested in, in multiple sclerosis. Any thoughts about that? Have you seen any of those patients in your practice? Yeah, so the famous uh, multiple sclerosis biologic is nadalizumab, which has been associated with PML. So in fact, uh, I think with particularly our HIV patients, we've, we've because of the success of, of ART, almost forgot about PML. But again, with these biologics, they're bringing back PML in the headlines. And some of these, uh, not just not, not uh, nadulizumab, but some of these other ones, like rituximab, even associated with PML, and maybe some of the new ones, are because we just don't know yet. Um, what some of the, page, the, the folks recommend with uh, the, what the known agents, like rituximab and nadulizumab, associated with PML, is to just check a JC antibody. In fact, they'd be very nervous about starting agents with somebody who's antibody positive. Got it, got it. Uh, hep, uh, hep, uh, HBV reactivation on, in some of these, you, is that a complication? Yeah, it, for sure it's a complication in, uh, even in TNF-alpha inhibitors, uh, that's uh, very, very commonly seen, so much so that the, you know, we, we always want to make sure that we stage folks exactly where they are in the HBV spectrum before putting so agents So somebody on. is HB, uh, HBV surface antibody positive, is that a risk? Uh, not by itself, but with a core positive, you want to make sure they, they don't have a viral load before starting them on the agent. If they have, you probably want to suppress that before starting on a TNF-alpha inhibitor. So they may not have an indication for treating Hep B before the TNF-alpha inhibitor, and then you revisit that once you know somebody's on it. And people forget these things all the time. We think, okay, well, this person is being seen by a specialist in GI. They know what they're doing. Actually, you know, we see a lot of people miss these things just because there's so many agents and it's hard to keep track of 
which one is associated with what. That's why you really have to have a sort of an organizational structure to approach these agents. So I guess that uh, one of the important take-home points is that if, if your patient is on one of these drugs that you can't pronounce, um, yeah. sort of recognize yeah. that there may be some, some very unusual complications uh, of that, maybe especially in your HIV-infected patients, and so really take the time, uh, uh, you know, Google it or talk to your colleagues uh, and find out really more specifically what they're on. Uh, last question, are you using Shingrix in HIV-infected individuals? Yes, uh, Shingrix is, is very safe. I mean, I think that it depends on how much evidence you want. Uh, there's, there's, you know, evidence being reported in, in not only HIV-infected patients, but also even in solid organ transplant recipients, which, again, it was a a no-no in the old days when we had, you know, the live attenuated vaccines. But with Shingrix, uh, just like the human papillomavirus vaccine, there should really be no contraindication in general. It's whether or not the ACIP steps up and other guidelines to say so. But I would say that uh, pretty much the writing is on the wall. And at some point, uh, people are going to be using Shingrix. It's, it's just remarkable in terms of its efficacy, over 95% efficacy, we've never seen, you know, apart from the H, human papillomavirus vaccine, we haven't really seen those numbers in many other vaccines. So, uh, thank you, Peter. And it's uh, really interesting that one of the first, one of the last things Peter mentioned was HPV.